This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In 1973, 16-year-old John Paul Getty III was kidnapped by members of the Calabrian crime organization, known as the Indrangheta. As the heir to the Getty fortune, he was the perfect target. The asking price for his safe return was $17 million. To find out what happened, check out these episodes from our captivating hostage podcast. Every Thursday, we tell electrifying crime stories culminating in intense life-or-death negotiations. Follow Hostage free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode features discussion of kidnapping and harassment that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. It was 3 a.m. and 16-year-old J. Paul Getty III was drunk and high. It was a warm July night in Rome. The teenager wandered the streets he'd lived in for most of his life, meandering his way home. His cheeks were flushed, but not only from the alcohol. He'd just had a fight with an old girlfriend. Her piercing voice was still ringing in his ears. She'd screamed at him that he was nothing without his name. Getty. He was heir to an oil fortune, and everyone saw him as rich and pampered. He wanted to be an artist, but nobody took him seriously. As he turned off the Campo dei Fiori and walked down a dark cobblestone street, he stopped to consider a fountain that he'd never noticed before. The marble statue spurted water out of its mouth, and after hours of partying, Paul could swear its expression changed and smiled at him. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a car came to a squealing halt beside him. Two men jumped out and grabbed Paul, then shoved him onto the floor in the back seat. The teenager had barely registered what was going on before the car peeled away. As the vehicle bounced over the cobblestones, one of the men's heels dug into Paul's back. He yelped in pain, with no idea just how much worse it was about to get. 
This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Hostage in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on the kidnapping of 16-year-old oil heir J. Paul Getty III on July 10, 1973. At the end of a night out in Rome, the teenage partygoer was grabbed by members of the Calabrian crime organization known as the Indrangheta and driven into the rugged mountains in the south of Italy. It would be days before anyone would take Paul's disappearance seriously even after the Andrangheta demanded a $17 million ransom. As months of negotiations dragged on, Paul found himself at the mercy of brutal and desperate men, willing to do anything to get their payout. This week, we'll get to know the young John Paul Getty III and the famously wealthy Getty family. We'll delve into the socio-political situation in Italy in the late 1960s and early 70s and the prominence of the Andrangheta. We'll also examine the events surrounding Paul's kidnapping and look at why his disappearance was initially believed to be a hoax. Next week, we'll follow Paul's months of captivity in the Calabrian Mountains. We'll take a look at the different players involved in negotiations and dig into the media circus that surrounded the case. In the early 1970s, Italy was in the midst of a decades-long period of turmoil. The country was still struggling in the wake of World War II. The rugged southern regions that had been left behind by industrialization had only suffered further because of the economic struggles after the war. And as the North rapidly modernized in the 1960s, the South struggled to keep up. As a result, organized crime groups started to gain a stronger foothold in more impoverished rural regions like Sicily, Calabria, and Sardinia. And as they did, they turned violent. They wrested power from the government and fought each other for control of territories, black markets, and financial assets. And one of the first methods they utilized was kidnapping. Kidnapping had long been a cultural practice on the island of Sardinia. In its central mountainous region, kidnappings and vendetta killings were a way of life for many of the island's ancient shepherding communities. As those communities struggled to survive in the 60s and 70s, kidnapping became a way to make money. Starting at about 1966, kidnappings by Sardinian bandits started to make the Italian news regularly. 
They were initially limited to impoverished locals kidnapping wealthier locals, but quickly evolved to targeting well-to-do outsiders who could pay higher ransoms. Between 1966 and 1970 alone, there were 40 kidnappings in Sardinia. The Italian media loved the sensational stories of the dramatic abduction so much that, over time, they started to feel commonplace. The government was so alarmed that, in 1969, it created a commission dedicated to investigating the phenomenon. Along with a handful of kidnappings perpetrated by Sicilian mafia groups, ransom kidnappings began to feel like daily occurrences throughout Italy. They laid the groundwork for the organization that would ultimately perfect the financial model, the Calabrian Indrangheta. As continental Italy's southernmost state, rural Calabria suffered more than its share in the post-war industrialization. It had never been a wealthy region, and the country's rapid modernization only made it poorer. In the early 1970s, the government tried to put money into the region's urban development. The Andrangheta saw this as an opportunity to enrich themselves and expand their power. And so they began using kidnapping as a way to raise startup capital in order to compete for government contracts. Before long, they controlled all the money coming into the region. As the Andrangheta's power and finances began to grow, the organization decided to branch out. Soon, many of the clans started to get involved in drugs and weapons trafficking, two of the world's most lucrative black markets. And then the Andrangheta looked north. A number of members of the syndicate had moved north after the Calabrian government instituted anti-mafia laws in the mid-1960s. There, they established new networks. By 1973, those networks were primed to collaborate with the Andrangadisti, looking to expand their ransom kidnapping operations beyond Calabria's borders. In ransom kidnapping, the anonymous underworld of the Italian Republic, Alessandra Montalbano explains that these groups weren't the old guard of the Andrangheta, many of whom actually found kidnapping dishonorable. Rather, they were upstarts with little to lose. They wanted to make money to build a black market operation, and they wanted to make a name for themselves. Much of the Andrangheta's success in Calabria stemmed from buying the loyalty of local farmers and shepherds and securing the state's central mountainous region. There, the forbidden terrain made it hard for outside law enforcement to track down their hideaways. They could run black market operations and hide hostages with impunity. As a result, they quickly became bold, dangerous, and ruthless. While the Andrangheta built up their finances in Italy, one of the richest men in the world, J. Paul Getty, was focused on keeping his fortune. The oil baron had expanded his father's lucrative Oklahoma oil business into an international empire during the first half of the 20th century. In 1957, Fortune magazine proclaimed J. Paul Getty to be the richest American, transforming him into a minor celebrity. By this time, the 65-year-old had had at least five children by just as many wives. 
Getty was a particular man who learned at a young age that his wealth freed him from social mores and the burdens of normal life. As a result, it became clear early on that he would do whatever it took to build and protect his fortune. He was known as a shrewd businessman and a hard bargainer. He was perpetually worried that someone would try to exploit him or steal from him, and he was terrified of death. By the 1970s, Sutton Place, Getty's 27-bedroom, 16th-century manor outside London, had been transformed into a fortress with armed guards, vicious German shepherds prowling the grounds, and bulletproof doors. And of course, there was his pet lion, Nero. J. Paul Getty probably showed the animal more affection than he did his family. He had little interest in his children and was separated from most of their mothers by the time the youngsters were old enough to know who he was. One of his wives accused him of being uninterested in his offspring until they were able to join his dynastic business. The accusation was a fair one. He was miserly toward his children, lording their trust over them. He famously did not send a wedding present to his son, John Paul Getty Jr. Well, that son, known as Paul Jr., was raised in San Francisco and married his longtime sweetheart, Gail Harris, in January 1956. That November, their first child, J. Paul Getty III, was born. Everyone called him Little Paul. Looking for a way to support his wife and child, Paul Jr. reached out to his older half-brother, George, who ran Getty Oil in Los Angeles. Paul wasn't much of a businessman, and since he had little work experience, George started him at the bottom, pumping gas in a station near their house. In 1958, Paul Jr. and Gail decided to go visit Paul's father in Paris. Despite his lack of interest in his own children, the aging J. Paul Getty was excited about his first grandchild. It was the first time J. Paul Getty had spent quality time with his son and was surprised to find out that he liked him and his daughter-in-law quite a bit. So much so that he wanted them to stay in Europe. In 1958, the patriarch made Paul Jr. the head of Getty Oil's Italy office in Rome. He ignored the fact that his son had no interest or experience in business. The young Getty family embraced life in Rome. The city was an artistic center, and in the 1960s, its film industry was booming. As representatives of Getty Oil, the family lived a decadent and high-flying lifestyle, and Gail and Paul hobnobbed at villas and aboard yachts with the international jet set. Soon, they had three more children and were delighted to spoil them. But Paul wasn't cut out for business, and his stress started to take a toll on their marriage. After less than 10 years, Paul and Gail split in 1964. Seven-year-old little Paul struggled with his parents' separation. He didn't like his mother's new boyfriend, and he found all the moving around difficult. He missed his father, who started spending more time in London, and got involved in the swinging 60s drug scene that Gail had eschewed. Little Paul started to act out at school, skipping class, flouting the teacher's authority, and causing trouble. In 1965, the eight-year-old set a fire at his boarding school outside Rome that got him expelled. 
His father was brought in to discipline him, but instead took his son to the patriarch's palace on the Italian coast. As a result, the boy began to see acting out as a way to get his father's attention. Pat Steffens and Kathy Bosch of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln write that feelings of rejection are one of the primary reasons children misbehave. The behavior may begin as a manifestation of feelings of unworthiness, but it quickly becomes a recourse to gain the attention they feel they're missing. Largely, these children feel unloved. Getting their parents to notice them, however negatively, only reinforces that this is the right way to get what they want. Little Paul became increasingly wild and troublesome over the next few years. He harassed his mother and her new husband, and he was kicked out of school after school for disruptive behavior. While little Paul's life was rife with chaos in Italy, his father was living the high life around the world. Paul Jr. busied himself buying sprawling palaces in London, Rome, and Marrakesh. He married the glamorous London actress and party girl Talita Pole, and the new couple created a sort of jet-set creative haven in Marrakesh. There, they and their friends embraced the free-love, drug-fueled culture of the 60s. In 1968, at age 11, little Paul went to visit his father and his new stepmother for Easter. The experience was transformative. Toledo was glamorous and beautiful, and the little boy immediately idolized her. Their house was a gathering place for an international artistic community that included the Rolling Stones, Yves Saint Laurent, and Jane Fonda. Their lives seemed to be one long party. By the time he returned to Rome, all little Paul wanted to do was recreate that world. If he couldn't go live in Marrakesh with his father in Toledo, he wanted to bring the artsy bohemian lifestyle to Italy, and he spent the next five years trying to do just that. But partying as a teenager in Rome was very different from hanging out with his father's jet-set friends. In his quest for a good time, Paul soon found himself enmeshed within the city's dangerous world of organized crime. In a moment, Paul falls in with a bad crowd and writes his own grim fate. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After experiencing his father's artsy bohemian lifestyle in Marrakesh in 1968, 11-year-old Little Paul returned to Rome, wanting to recreate the hippie paradise. Instead, his mother sent him off to a strict Catholic boarding school, hoping that it would tame him. But Paul continued to act out, and in June of 1971, at age 14, he was expelled. Around the same time, his father's wife, Talita, died of a presumed heroin overdose, plunging both father and son into a deep depression. 
That fall in Rome, struggling to cope with his grief, little Paul discovered marijuana and girls. At the same time, his father, Paul Jr., became more addicted to drugs. The two would even smoke pot together. Gail didn't know what to do with her 14-year-old son, so she let him run wild. He started to deal marijuana and cocaine and got involved in Rome's hippie scene, mingling with his father's artistic friends. Then he began modeling. Soon, a photograph of him in a magazine elevated little Paul to local celebrity status, and he became known as the Golden Hippie. In early 1972, Paul Jr. invited his 15-year-old son to come live with him and his new girlfriend in London. There, little Paul discovered acid and harder drugs. It wasn't long before his introverted father realized he couldn't cope with the rebellious teenager. And so, he sent little Paul to his grandfather. J. Paul Getty didn't know what to do with the long-haired, ripped-jeans-wearing teen who showed up at his mansion that summer. He tried to take the boy under his wing and groom him to take over the family business, but little Paul wasn't interested. In fact, the only thing he was interested in was his grandfather's money and the power that came with it. He saw firsthand what being a Getty really meant. He relished the respect and power of the patriarch's position and the luster of what it meant to be a Getty heir manifested before him. When little Paul Getty III returned home to Rome in the middle of 1972, the 15-year-old had fully completed his transformation into a wild child. His mother had virtually given up on trying to keep him in check. He ran around the city with a glamorous older crowd, doing hard drugs, partying all night, and going through girlfriend after girlfriend. Paul relished feeling like an adult and knowing he was flouting his mother's wishes. He hadn't returned to school that year, instead spending his days hanging out with his artist friends and getting high. That summer, while on a trip to Positano, he met Marcello Crisi, a painter in his early 30s who ran in the same circles in Rome. The two immediately hit it off, despite the age difference. When fall came around and it was time to return to Rome, Marcello offered to let Paul stay in his own apartment turned studio. Paul jumped at the chance. It was an opportunity for the young teen to blossom. He focused on his painting, and he and Marcello even held an exhibition in the studio. He also got to know the Trastevere neighborhood where he was staying. From its foundings in Roman times, Trastevere had long been a rough, working-class neighborhood of immigrants and outcasts. By the early 1970s, it was known as a hangout for artists, political radicals, and the petty criminals known as the Malavita. Well, needless to say, Paul loved it. He kept company with the down-and-out Italian artists and got to know the local crime boss, Cembalone, who ran the area's drug trade. He wielded his name to open doors and attract girls. He began to pay for meals at his favorite local restaurant with his paintings. He quickly became a fixture at the best local nightclubs. In early 1973, shortly after his 16th birthday, 
Paul met Martine Zaka. Martine and her sister Jutta were 24-year-old twins from Germany who believed they could make the world a better place through love and art. By the time they met Paul, they were just starting to make a name for themselves as artists and actors and were hanging out with the likes of Mick Jagger and Andy Warhol. Paul liked Martine from the start, and as she and Jutta got to know him, the twins realized Paul was a kindred spirit who shared their dreams of improving the world through art and love. They invited him to move in with them, not as a boyfriend or sexual partner, but rather as a third part of their soul. Before long, the three had moved back into Marcello's place, and shortly thereafter, Paul and Martine became a couple. With the twins, Paul started to become more politically engaged. Even as he liked using the Getty name, Paul began to speak out against his grandfather's oil company and how it was destroying the planet and funding corrupt politicians. Early that year, he was arrested during a student demonstration, though he claimed to have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. But as he joined the twins' world, Paul's profile was rising among the Malavita crew, too. He liked hobnobbing with the mobster Ciambelloni and his affiliates and started to get involved in bigger drug deals. In the 16-year-old's mind, he was organizing a gang. He felt invincible and rebellious, like a character in a movie. He wanted to be part of drug dealing and weapons trading and political disruption. He didn't think twice about what it meant to be involved with criminal organizations or to owe them money for the drugs he and his friends were consuming. According to the research of Dr. Lawrence Steinberg of Temple University, teenagers are more likely than children or adults to engage in risky behavior because of their psychosocial immaturity. In other words, teenagers impulse control, emotion regulation, delay of gratification, and resistance to peer influence are not fully developed. As a teenager who craved an exciting lifestyle and was already surrounded by people who were involved in criminal organizations, Paul was ideally positioned to engage in risky behavior. He may have recognized that it was dangerous, but his psychosocial immaturity meant that he got involved anyway. An example of his inability to resist peer influence is how, every so often, one of Paul's friends would suggest that they should kidnap him in order to get access to his grandfather's money. Paul would agree with them, thinking it was just talk. His friends usually talked a bigger game than they played. Martine and Yuta felt a bit uncomfortable about his associations with the Malavita, but they also shared his naive enthusiasm for the adventurous, drug-fueled lifestyle. Plus, the mobsters had money, and the twins were trying to raise funds to make a film. So when one day, Ciambellone offered to be an investor, they agreed to meet him. When Paul, Martine, and Yuta arrived, the apartment was filled with 10 to 15 middle-aged Italian mobsters. They locked the door behind the twins and Paul and started screening porn on a projector. Immediately unsettled by the situation, Paul explained to Ciambelloni that he had to go shopping. Ciambelloni agreed to let him leave, but insisted the twins stay to talk about financing their film. Paul immediately knew this meant trouble, but was smart enough to know that protesting put the twins in more danger than leaving them. 
With a knot in his stomach, he walked out of the apartment. After Paul left, Ciambellone quickly agreed to give Martine and Yuta the money, but he wouldn't let them leave the apartment. Instead, the mobsters insisted that they all celebrate over cocaine and champagne. It became obvious what the men really wanted from the two young women. The mobsters stripped down to their underwear and began to argue amongst themselves which of them would get to have sex with the twins. Terrified, Martine and Yuta protested. They tried every trick in the book to put the men off, including locking themselves in the bathroom. The twins were held captive in the apartment for three days. During this time, Ciambelloni tried to convince Yuta to marry him, but she refused. Both women claimed the men didn't rape them, despite threatening to. On the second day, Paul and Marcello tried to intervene, but the mobsters fired machine guns at the two young men, scaring them off. On the third day, Ciambellone grew paranoid and decided they had to move locations. However, while changing cars on a busy street, the twins were able to escape. The twins accused Paul of having traded them to the mobsters in exchange for cocaine, or perhaps relief from the money he owed them. He swore to them that he had no idea what would happen, though he did acknowledge he'd behaved poorly and hadn't considered the consequences of introducing them to the mob. Regardless, Yuta was so upset that she moved out of their shared apartment, and Martine followed shortly after. Ciambellone and his crew never forgave Paul for the twins' escape. Despite the trauma, Paul and Martine's relationship survived the abduction and, indeed, strengthened. Soon, he moved into his own place, in the same building the twins had moved into, and started to hang out with their friends, rather than the Malavita crowd. The three started to make plans. Paul and the twins talked about their dream of an artist colony where they could transform the world, remembering his father's palace in Marrakesh, where artists from around the globe had congregated, Paul decided their paradise should be in Morocco, too. All they had to do was figure out how to fund it. As a 16-year-old, Paul didn't have access to his family's money. But he had an idea how to get it. After the break, we'll find out what happened when Paul finally realized he'd gotten involved with the wrong crowd. Now, back to the story. By late spring 1973, 16-year-old J. Paul Getty III was starting to turn his life around. After the Malavita had tried to abduct his 24-year-old girlfriend Martine and her sister Yuda, he'd stopped associating with the small-time criminals. He wanted to focus on his artistic dreams with the twins and the vision they had for an artist colony in Morocco. They felt the only thing standing in their way, apart from artistic recognition, was money. But Paul had an idea. According to Martine, he told her and Yuta that he knew people who could kidnap him. He was sure his grandfather would pay the ransom. Once they had the money, they'd be able to bring their vision to life. Martine claims that she and her sister didn't like the idea, but they agreed with him that they had to do whatever it took. But as the summer of 1973 rolled around, things started to change. 
The twins were getting traction with their film, and all three of them started modeling for major magazines. They even got bit parts in Roman Polanski's films. Paul felt like his life was moving forward. He was finally making real art, and wasn't just painting mediocre pictures to trade for meals on the strength of his name. He had moved out of Marcello's place and had his own apartment, and his relationship with his mother had improved somewhat. He even started to become a bit of an international celebrity. In the first weeks of July 1973, Paul and the twins posed nude for an Italian magazine called Playmen. It was scandalous and established Paul as the rebellious scion of the Getty family. Paul and Martine were happy together. Paul told the twins he didn't want to get kidnapped anymore. He liked the life they were building. But around the same time, Paul started to become paranoid. He no longer wanted to have himself kidnapped, but he worried that other people had taken him seriously. He started to notice cars following him, and men watching him from across the street of his apartment building. Young people he'd met in passing at parties would sometimes approach him and suggest collaborating on a kidnapping. Any time a car followed him, he and his friends would try to chase it down in order to get the license plate number. Once, he even threw a chair at a pair of men watching his apartment. The 16-year-old didn't seem to understand the consequences of the world he'd gotten himself involved in. He thought he could drop in and out as he pleased, and that he was more than capable of handling the situation. In fact, this sense was likely, in part, a result of his wealthy upbringing. In a study published by the American Psychological Association, people from wealthy backgrounds tend to be overconfident in their abilities. They generally see themselves as more capable than people from less affluent backgrounds. Paul lived in a world where his family's name and money had given him advantages and protections that few other people had. To him, his feelings of superiority seemed justified. But he was about to discover that, despite his family's influence, the rules still applied to him. On the morning of July 10th, 1973, Paul called Martine and asked her to meet him at the Piazza Navona. There, he asked her to marry him. She said yes. The two parted ways giddy. They both had things to do that day, but agreed to meet up that night to celebrate. That evening, Paul went out for a night on the town, as usual, dressed in tight jeans and a glittery t-shirt. He ran into friends like Roman Polanski, Andy Warhol, and Mick Jagger. They went from bar to bar, collecting more friends, going to clubs, drinking, and doing cocaine. The night dragged on, and still Paul hadn't run into Martine, but he wasn't worried. They'd find each other. After a while, the drunk 16-year-old decided that he wanted to go to Positano, a picturesque seaside town a couple of hours south of Rome. None of the crowd he was with wanted to go. So he decided to go off in search of a willing companion. By this point, it was well after midnight and the cafes and bars were starting to close, but that didn't deter him. At the Piazza Navona, he ran into an old girlfriend who generally hung out with the Malavita crew. Paul asked her if she'd drive him to Positano. 
Of course, she told him no. So instead, he asked for a ride home. But she was drunk too, and in no mood to humor him. Not only did she refuse to give him a ride home, but she accused him of giving her chlamydia. Well, that wasn't what the drunk teenager needed to hear. He grew angry and swore at her, shouting in the middle of the busy piazza. She screamed back, and within minutes, the two were having a very public argument. Perhaps she felt scorned by him, or perhaps she just had some feelings to get off her chest. Analysts of the case would later believe she may have been working on behalf of the mobsters she hung around with. The argument finally ended when she screamed that Paul was nothing but a name. It was the worst insult she could have used. Paul was desperate to be taken seriously as an artist and as an individual. To accuse him of being nothing more than his family's name wounded him deeply. He staggered off into the night, brooding and upset. Then he headed for the Campo dei Fiori, where he bought a pack of cigarettes. He stumbled down the street, smoking, trying to clear his mind of the alcohol and the argument. His head was spinning. The night was hot and humid. He had to keep stopping to prop himself up. At the end of the street, he saw a fountain. He must have passed it a million times before, but he'd never paid it much attention. Now he found himself entranced by it. It was a marble statue of a person, a young woman or a boy perhaps. Water spurted from its mouth. As Paul started stumbling towards it, he could swear it smiled at him. He felt like it was mocking him, just like his ex-girlfriend had minutes before. Even statues ridiculed him. Suddenly, as if out of nowhere, car pulled up next to him. In an instant, two or three men jumped out and grabbed him. They threw him down on the floor of the back seat. At least one of them climbed into the back, his shoes digging into Paul's shoulder blades. And then, as quickly as it had swooped in, the car sped off. Paul hadn't had a chance to resist. The car bounced across the city's cobblestones, making the intoxicated teenager feel even more drunk. His head was spinning. He wasn't sure if what was happening was real. As the hours dragged on and they kept driving, Paul began to get worried. After a while, one of the men in the front leaned back to ask him his name and if he had his papers on him. He didn't and told them so. They drove on in silence. At some point, he worked up the courage to ask the men for water, but they gave him whiskey instead. The drunk teenager felt himself passing out from all the alcohol as the car raced along, increasingly unsure of what was going on around him. After what felt like hours, the car finally stopped. The men blindfolded Paul and bound his hands and feet. They picked him up like a sack of potatoes, eventually dropping him down on what felt like grass. He heard them talking quietly. He could tell that the sun was starting to come up, but he was too afraid to move or ask questions. Finally, he began to suspect that this was something far more dangerous than the Malavita. He may have been drunk, confused and exhausted, but he knew these men weren't messing around. 
J. Paul Getty III, scion of one of the richest men in the world, was now at the mercy of Italian criminals. Next week, we'll find out what Paul's life was like during the five months he was held captive by brutal Calabrian mobsters. We'll track the high-profile negotiations and search for him, and examine the impact of the sensationalist press on the case and its final dramatic outcome. Thanks again for tuning in to Hostage. We will be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Hostage, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app, Tap Browse and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Hostage was written by Kate Thorman and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. 